Hey, 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 y'all, this is your girl, Tanetta, <laughs> um, here on the podcast, The Social Worker Coach. I want to say thank y'all for tuning in, and I wanted to, of course, get into The Law of Success by Napoleon Hill. This is um, Enthusiasm Part Number 3. This should be the last part. I'm pretty sure, because I should be able to get through these last. <clears throat> um... I don't see it. Probably about 15, 20 pages. I don't know, 15 pages. So, like I said, I should be able to get through these. So, let me go ahead and get started. I do want to say that, um, of course, um, the podcast episode, of course, make sure that when podcast, and of course, it's going to be on YouTube. So, of course, make sure that you check the link in the descriptions to make sure that you're connecting with me either on my podcast, if you're on YouTube, or on YouTube, if you're on the podcast. And, of course, other places that I have, I'm, I'm on social media like Facebook or Instagram. Feel free to like me on those too, and of course, join my communities there as well. So, like I said, definitely um, want to thank you all in advance. Let me go ahead and get started and picked up where I finished off. <laughs> <clears throat> then, turning to a small colored boy who sat nearby, he ordered the boy to bring his shoe shine outfit and shine his shoes right where he stood on top of the table. The salesmen in the audience were astounded. Some of them thought that Mr. Chalmers had suddenly lost his mind. They began to whisper among themselves. Meanwhile, the little colored boy shined first one and then the other shoe, taking plenty of time and doing a first-class job. <clears throat> After the job was finished, Mr. Chalmers handed the boy a dime, then went ahead with his speech. I want each of you, he said, to take a good look at this little colored boy. He has the concession for shoe shining through our plant and offices. His predecessor was a white boy, considerably older than himself. And despite the fact that the company su subsidized him with a salary of $5 a week, he could not make a living in this plant where thousands of people are employed. This little cola boy not only makes a good living, good living without any subsidy from the company, but he is actually saving money out of his earnings each week, working under the same conditions in the same plant for the same people. Now I wish to ask you a question. Whose fault is it that the little white boy did not get more business? Was it his fault or the fault of his buyers? In a mighty roar from the crowd, the answer came back. It was the boy's fault, of course. Just so, replied Chalmers. And now I want to tell you this, that you are selling cash registers in the same territory to the same people with exactly the same business conditions that existed a year ago, yet you're not producing the business that you were back then. Now, whose fault is that? Is it yours or the buyers? And again, the answer came back with the war. It is our fault, of course. I am glad that you are frank to acknowledge this, your faults. Chalmers continued. <clears throat> I got some sinus problems, so just bear with me. And I now wish to tell you what your trouble is. You have heard rumors about this company being a financial trouble and that has killed off your enthusiasm so that you are not making the effort that you formerly made. If you will go back into your territories with the definite promise to send in five orders each during the next 30 days, this company will no longer be in a financial difficulty. For that additional business will see us clear. Will you do it? They said they would and they did. That incident has gone down in the history of the National Cash Register Company under the name of Hugh Chalmers Million, Million Dollar Shoeshine 
For it is said that this turned the tide in the company's affairs and was worth millions of dollars. <clears throat> enthusiasm knows no defeat. The sales manager who knows how to send out an army of enthusiastic salespeople may set his own price on his own services. And what is more important even than this, he can increase the earning capacity of every person under his direction. Thus, his enthusiasm benefits not only himself, but perhaps hundreds of others. Enthusiasm is never a matter of chance. There are certain stimuli which produce enthusiasm. The most important of these being as follows. One, occupation and work which one loves best. Two, environment where one comes in contact with others who are enthusiastic and optimistic. Three, financial success. Four, complete mastery and application in one's daily work of the 15 laws of success. <clears throat> Five, good health. Six, knowledge that one has served others in some helpful manner. Seven, good clothes appropriate to the needs of one's occupation. All of these seven sources of stimuli are self-explanatory with the exception of the last. The psychology of clothes is understood by very few people. And for this reason, it will be here explained in detail. Clothes constitute the most important part of the embellishment which every person must have in order to feel self-reliant, hopeful, and enthusiastic. The psychology of good clothes. <clears throat> when the good news came from the theater of war on November the 11th, 1918, my worldly possessions amounted to but little more than they did the day I came into the world. The war had destroyed my business and made it necessary for me to make a new start. My wardrobe consisted of three well-worn business suits and two uniforms, which I no longer needed. Knowing all too well that the world forms its first and most lasting impression of a man by the clothes he wears, I lost no time in visiting my tailor. Happily, my tailor had known me for many years. Therefore, he did not judge me entirely by the clothes I wore. If he had, I would have been sunk. <laughs> With less than a dollar and change in my pocket, I picked out the clothes for three of my most expensive suits I ever owned in order that they be made up for me at once. Three suits came to $375. I shall never forget the remark made by the tailor as, to, as he took my measure. Glancing first at the three bolts of expensive cloth, which I had selected, and then at me, he inquired, Dollar a year, man, eh? No, said I. If I had been fortunate enough to get on the dollar a year payroll, I might now have enough money to pay for these suits. The tailor, the tailor looked at me with surprise. I don't think he got the joke. <laughs> one of the suits was a beautiful dark gray. One was a dark blue. The other was a light blue with pinstripe. <clears throat> Fortunately, I was in the good standing with my tailor. Therefore, he did not ask when I was going to pay for those expensive suits. I knew that I could and would pay for them in due time, but could I have convinced him of that? This was the thought which was running through my mind, with hope against hope, that the question would not be brought up. I then visited my haberdasher, from whom I purchased three less expensive suits and a complete study of the best shirts, collars, ties, hosiery, and underwear that he carried. My bill at the haberdashers amounted to a little over $300. 
with an air of prosperity, I nonchalantly signed the charge ticket and tossed it back to the salesman. With instructions to deliver my purchase the following morning. The feeling of renewed self-reliance and success had become had begun to come over me, even before I had attired myself in the newly purchased outfit. I was out of the war and $675 in debt, all in less than 24 hours. The following day, the first of the three suits ordered from the haberdasher was delivered. I put it on at once, stuffed a new silk scarf handkerchief in the outside pocket of my coat, shoved the $50 I had borrowed on my ring down into my pants and walked down to Michigan Boulevard in Chicago, feeling as rich as Rockefeller. Every article of clothing I wore for my underwear out was the very best. That it was not paid for by nobody's business except mine and my tailors, my haberdashers. Every morning I dressed myself in an entirely new outfit and walked down the same street at precisely the same hour. That hour happened to be the time when a certain wealthy publisher usually walked down the same street on his way to lunch. I made it my business to speak to him each day. <clears throat> and occasionally I would stop for a minute's chat with him. After this daily meeting had, gone, had been going on for about a week, I met with this publisher one day, but decided I would see if he would let me get by without speaking. Watching him from under my lashes, I looked straight ahead and started to pass him when he stopped and motioned me over to the edge of the sidewalk. Placed his hand on my shoulder, looked me over from head to foot and said, You look damn prosperous for a man who just laid aside a uniform. Who makes your clothes? Well, said I, Wilkie and Celery made this particular suit. He then wanted to know the sort of business I engaged in, that airy atmosphere of prosperity which I had been wearing, along with the new and different suit every day, had got the better of his curiosity. I hoped that it would. Flipping the ashes from my Havana Perfecto, I said, oh, I'm preparing to, I'm, oh, I'm preparing the copy for a new magazine that I'm going to publish. A new magazine, eh? He, he required, I mean, he inquired. And what are you going to call it? It is to be named Hill's Golden Rule. Don't forget, my publisher friend, that I'm in the business of printing and distributing magazines. Perhaps I can serve you also. That was the very moment that I had been waiting for. I had that very moment and almost the very spot of ground on which we stood in mind when I was purchasing those new suits. But it is all to remind you that conversation never would have taken place had this publisher served me, observed me, walking down that street from day to day with the whipped dog look on my face and unpressed suit on my back and a look of poverty in my eyes. An appearance of prosperity attracts attention always, with no exceptions whatsoever. Moreover, a look of prosperity attracts favorable attention because the one dominating desire in every human heart is to be prosperous. My publisher friend invited me to his club for lunch. Before the coffee and cigars had been served, he talked me out of the contract for printing and distributing my magazine. I had even consented to permit him to supply the capital without any interest charge. For the benefit of those who are not familiar with the publishing business, 
May I not offer the information that considerable capital is required for launching a newly distributed magazine? Capital in such large amounts is often hard to get, even with the best security. The capital necessary for launching Hill's Golden Rule magazine, which you may have read, was well over $30,000. And every cent of it was raised on a front created mostly by good clothes. Mm, interesting. <laughs> True, there may have been some ability back of those clothes, but many millions of men have ability who never have anything else, who are never heard of outside of the limited community in which they live in. This is rather sad, true. To some, it may seem unpardonable extravagance for one who was broke to get to have given, have gone in debt for $675 worth of clothes, but the psychology back of that investment more than just justified it. The appearance of prosperity not only made a favorable impression on those to whom I had to look for favors, but of the most important, but of the more important still was the effect that proper attire had on me. I not only knew that correct clothes would impress others favorably, but I, I knew also that good clothes would give me an atmosphere of self-reliance, without which I could not hope to regain my lost fortunes. I got my first training in psychology of good clothes from my friend Edwin C. Borns, who was the close business associate of Thomas A. Edison. Borns afforded considerable amusement for Edison, for the Edison staff when some 20 odd years ago, he rode into West Orange on a freight train, not being able to raise sufficient money for passenger fare, and announced that the Edison offices that he had come to enter into a partnership with Mr. Edison. Nearly everybody around the Edison plant laughed at Barnes, except Edison himself. He saw something in the square jaw and determined face of young Barnes, which most of the others did not see, despite the fact that the young man looked more like a tramp than he did like a future partner of the greatest investor on earth. Barnes got his start sweeping floors in the Edison's office. That was all he sought, just a chance to get a toehold in the Edison organization. From there, he made history that is well worth emulation by, old, by other men who wish to make places for themselves. Borns had now retired from active business, even though he is still a comparatively young man and spent most of his time at two beautiful homes in Bradenton Town, Florida, and Amerascotta, Maine. He is a multimillionaire, prosperous and happy. I first became acquainted with Barnes during the early days of his association with Edison before he had arrived. In those days, he had the largest and most expensive collection of clothes I had ever seen or heard of one man owning. His wardrobe consisted of 31 suits. Wow, one for each day of the month, okay. He never wore the same suit two days in succession, okay. Moreover, all his suits were of the most expensive type. Incidentally, his clothes were made by the same tailors who made those three suits for me. He wore socks which cost $6 per pair. His shirts and other wearing apparel cost in similar proportion. His cravats were specially made at a cost from 5 to $7 and a half each. One day, in the spirit of fun, I asked him to save some of his old suits which he did not need for me. 
He informed me that he hadn't had a single suit, which he did not need. He then gave me a lesson on the psychology of clothes, which is well worth remembering. I did not wear 31 suits of clothes, said he, entirely for the impression they make on other people. I do it mostly for the impression they have on me. Borns then told me of the day when he presented himself at the Edison plant for a position. He said he had to walk around the plant a dozen times before he worked up enough courage to announce himself. Because he knew that he looked more like a tramp than he did like a desirable employee. Borns is said to be the most able salesman ever connected with the great inventor of West Orange. His entire fortune was made through his ability as a salesman, but he has often said that he never could have accomplished the rules which made him both wealthy and famous, had it not been for his understanding of the psychology of clothes. I have met many salesmen in my time. During the past 10 years, I have personally trained and directed the efforts of more than 3,000 salespeople, both men and women, and I have observed that without a single exception, the star producers were all people who understood and made use, good use of the psychology of clothes. I have seen a few well-dressed people who made no outstanding records as salesmen, but I have yet to see the first poorly dressed man who became a star producer in the field of selling. I have studied the psychology of clothes for so long and I have watched its effect on many people in many walks of life that I'm fully convinced there is a close connection between clothes and success. Very interesting. Personally, I feel no need of 31 suits of clothes, but if my personality demanded a wardrobe of this size, I would manage to get it, no matter how much it costs. To be well-dressed, a man should have at least 10 suits of clothes. He should have a different suit for each day of the seven days a week, a full-dress suit a and a tuxedo for formal evening occasions, and a cutaway for formal afternoon occasions. For summer, he, would, he should have an assortment of at least four appropriate night suits, with blue coat and white flannel trousers with it for informal afternoons and evening occasions. If he plays golf, he shall at least have at least one golf suit. This, of course, is for the man who is a notch or two above the mediocre class. The man who is satisfied with mediocrity needs but few clothes. It may be true, as well as a known poet has said, that clothes do not make the man, but no one can deny the fact that good clothes go a very long way towards giving him a favorable start. A man's bank will generally loan him all the money he wants when he does not need it, when he is prosperous, but never go to the bank for a long with a shabby looking suit on your back and a look of poverty in your eyes, for if you do, you'll get the gate. Success attracts success. There is no escape from this great universal law. Therefore, if you wish to attract success, make sure that you look the part of success, whether your calling is that of day labor or merchant prince. For the benefit of a more for the benefit of the more dignified students of this, of this psychology, who may object to resorting to stunt, stimuli, or trick clothing as a means of achieving success. It may be profitably explained that practically every successful man on earth has discovered some form of stimulus through which he can and does drive himself on to greater effort. May, it may be shocking to members of the anti saloon League, but it is said to be true nonetheless 
that James Whitcomb Riley wrote his best poems when he was under the influence of alcohol. His stimulus was liquor. The authority wishes it distinctly understood that he does not recommend the use of alcoholic or narcotic stimuli for any purpose whatsoever, as either will eventually destroy both mind and body of all who use them. Give me a second. I'm just trying to look through this. Okay. She'll be able to finish this. Okay. Under the influence of alcohol, Riley became imaginative, enthusiastic, and an entirely different person, according to close personal friends of his. Edwin Barnes spurred himself into the necessary action, excuse me, to reduce outstanding results with the aid of good clothes. Some men rise to great heights of achievement as the result of love for some woman. Connect this with the brief suggestion to the subject which was made in the introductory lesson, and you will, if you are a person who knows the ways of men, be able to finish a discussion of this particular phase of enthusiasm, stimulus without further comment by the author, which might not be for the younger minds that will assimilate this philosophy. Underworld characters who are engaged in the dangerous business of highway robbery, burglary, and generally dope themselves for the occasion of their operations with cocaine, morphine, and other narcotics. Even in this, there is a lesson which shows that practically all men need temporary or artificial stimuli to drive them to greater effort than that normally employed in the ordinary pursuits of life. Successful people have discovered ways and means which they believe best suited to their own needs to produce stimuli which cause them to rise to heights of endeavor above the ordinary. Give my water, y'all. One of the most successful writers in the world employs an orchestra of beautifully dressed young women who play for him while he writes. Hmm. <laughs> Seated in a room that has been artistically decorated to suit his own taste, under lights that have been colored, tinted, and softened, these beautiful young ladies, dressed in handsome evening gowns, play his favorite music. To use his own words, I become drunk with enthusiasm under the influence of this environment and rise to heights I never know or feel on other occasions. It is then that I do my work. The thoughts pour in on me as if they were dictated by an unseen and unknown power. This author gets much of his inspiration from music and art. Once a week, he spends at least an hour in an art museum looking at the works of the masters. On these occasions, again, using his own words, I get enough enthusiasm from one hour's visit in the museum of art that carried me for two days. Edgar Allan Poe wrote The Raven when, as reported, he was more than half intoxicated. Oscar Wilde wrote poems under the influence of a form of stimuli which cannot be appropriately mentioned in the course of this nature. Wow. I don't know what that was. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Henry Ford, so it is believed by this author, who admits that this is merely the author's opinion, got his real start as a result of his love for his charming life companion. It was she who inspired him, gave him faith in himself, kept him keyed up so that he carried on in the face of adversities, which would have killed off a dozen ordinary men. These incidents are cited as evidence that men of outstanding achievement have by accident or by design, discover ways and means of stimulating themselves to a high state of enthusiasm. <clears throat> Associate that which has been here stated with 
what was said concerning the law of the mastermind <laughs> in the introductory lesson, and you would have an entirely new concept of the modus operandi through which the law may be applied. You will also have a somewhat different understanding of the real purpose or of alien allied effort in the spirit of perfect harmony, which constitutes the best known method of bringing into use the law of the mastermind. At this point, it seems appropriate to call your attention to the manner in which the lesson of this course blend. You will observe that each lesson covers the subject intended to be covered, and in addition to this, it overlaps and gives the student a better understanding of some of the lesson, some other lesson or lessons of the course. In addition of what, in the light of what has been said in this lesson, for example, the student will better understand the real purpose of the law and the mastermind, that purpose being in the main, a practical method of simulating the minds of all who participate in the group constituting the mastermind. Time is times too numerous to be here. Described this author has gone into conference with men whose faces showed the signs of care, who had the appearance of worry written all over them only to see that those same men straighten up their shoulders, tilt their chins in a higher angle, soften their face and smiles with confidence, and get down to business. With that sort of enthusiasm, no, no, that sort of enthusiasm, which knows no defeat. The change took place the moment harmony of purpose was established. A man goes about the affairs of life the same day in, day out, prosaic, like a daisy old spirit, devoid of Emphasis, I mean, enthusiasm. He is doomed to failure. Nothing can save him until he changes changes his attitude and learns how to stimulate his mind and body to usual heights of enthusiasm at will. The author is unwilling to leave this subject without having stated the principle here described in so many ways that it is bound to understand and also respected by the students of this course, who all will remember are men and women of all sorts of natures, experiences, degrees, and, and of intelligence. For this reason, much repetition is essential. Your business in life, you are reminded once again, is to achieve success. With the stimuli, with the stimulus you will experience, experience from studying this philosophy and with the aid of the ideas you will gather from it, plus the personal encounters of the author, who will give you an accuracy, an accurate inventory of your outstanding qualities, you should be able to create a definite plan that will lift you to great heights of achievement. However, there is no plan that can produce that this desirable result, result without the aid of some influence that will cause you to arouse yourself in the spirit of enthusiasm to where you will exert greater than ordinary effort, which you put into your daily occupation. You are now ready for the lesson on self-control. As you read this, that lesson, you will, you will observe that it is a vital bearing on this lesson, just as, it does, just as this lesson has a direct connection with the pre preceding lessons on a definite chief aim, self-confidence, initiative, and leadership, and imagination. The next lesson describes the law which serves as balance, as the balance wheel of this entire philosophy. The Seven Daily Horsemen and After Lesson Visit with the Author. The seven horsemen are labeled in order shown intolerance, greed, revenge, egotism, suspicion, jealousy, and 
The worst enemy that any man has is the one that walks around under his own hat. If you can see yourself as you see others, you see the enemies that you harbor in your own personality might be discovered and thrown out. The seven enemies named in this essay are the most commonest, which ride millions of men and women to failure without being discovered. You see in this picture, seven deadly warriors. From birth until death, every human being must give battle to these enemies. Your success will be measured very largely by the way you manage your battle against these swift riders. As you look at the picture, you will say, of course, that it is only imagination. True, the picture is imaginator, is imaginary, but the swift riders of destruction are real. If these enemies rode openly on real horses, they would not be dangerous because they could be round, rounded up and put out of commission, but they ride unseen in the minds of men. So silently and subtly, subtly do they work that most people never recognize their presence. Take inventory of yourself and find out how many of these seven horsemen you are harboring. Okay. Oh, in the foreground, you will find the most dangerous and the most commonest of the riders. You will be fortunate if you discover this enemy and protect yourself against it. This cruel warrior intolerance has killed more people, destroyed more friendships, brought more misery and suffering into the world, and caused more wars than all the other six horsemen that you see in this picture. Until you master intolerance, you will never become an accurate thinker. This enemy of mine Mankind closes up the mind and pushes reason and logic and facts into the background. If you find yourself hating those whose religious viewpoints are different from your own, you may be sure that the most dangerous of the seven daily horsemen still rides in your brain. Next in the picture, you will observe the revenge and creed. These riders travel side by side, where one is found, the other is always close at hand. Creed, I mean, greed. Think about boxing, y'all. <laughs> Greed warps and twists man's brain so that he wants to build a fence around the earth and keep everyone else on the outside of it. This is the enemy that drives man to accumulate millions on top of millions of dollars, which he does not need and can never use. <clears throat> this is the enemy that causes man to twist the screw until he has wrung the last drop of blood from his fellow man. And thanks to revenge, which rises along, alongside of greed, the unfortunate person who gives brain room to these cruel twins, excuse me, is not satisfied to merely take away his fellow man's earthly belongings. He wants to destroy his reputation and bargain. Revenge is a naked sword. It has neither hilt nor guard. Wouldst thou wilt the brand of the Lord? Is thy grasp is is there is thy grasp then firm and hard? But the closer thy clutch of the blade, the deadlier blow thou would steal. Deep wound in thy hand is made. It is thy blood rents the steel. And when thou hast dealt the blow, when the blade from thy hand is flown, instead of the heart of the foe, thou mayest find it sheathed in thine own. Okay, it was kind of hard to read, y'all. <laughs> the old language. If you would know how deadly are, Envy and greed, study the history of every man who has set out to become the ruler of the world. If, if you do not wish to undertake so ambitious a program of research, then study the people around you. 
those who have tried and those who are now trying to feather their own nests at the cost of others. Greed and revenge stand out at the crossroads of life, where they turn aside to failure and misery every person who would take the road that leads to success. It is a part of your business not to not to permit them to interfere with you when you approach one of the one of these crossroads. Both individuals and nations rapidly decline where greed and envy ride in the minds of those who dominate. Take a look at Mexico and Spain if you wish to know what happened to the envious and greedy. Most of all, take a look at yourself and make sure that those two daily en enemies are not riding in your brain. Turn your attention now to the two more twins of destruction, egotism and suspicion. Observe that they ride side by side. There is no hope of success for the person who suffers either from too much love or lack of confidence in others. <clears throat> Someone who likes to manipulate figures has estimated that the largest club in the world is the It Can't Be Done Club. It is claimed that there are approximately nine, 99 million members of this club in the, in the U.S. alone. If you have no faith in other people, you have not the seed of success in you. Suspicion is a prolific germ. If permitted to get a start, it rapidly multiplies itself until it leaves no room for faith. Without faith, no man may enjoy enduring success. Running like a golden cord of illumination throughout the Bible is the admonition to have faith. Before civilization lost itself in this mad rush for dollars, men understood the power of faith. Believe in people if you would have them believe in you. Kill off suspicion. If you do not, it will kill you off. If you have power, cultivate Cultivate cultivates faith in mankind. Give me one second, y'all. Okay. Egotism thrives where suspicion exists. Interest yourself in others and you will be too busy to indulge in self-love. Observe those around you who begin every sentence with the personal pronoun I, and you will notice that there are suspicions of other people. The man who can't forget himself while engaging in useful service to other people is never cursed with suspicion. Study those about you who are both suspicious and egotistical and see how many of this type you can name who are successful in whatever work they may be engaged in. And while making this study of others, study also yourself. Be sure that you are not bound by egotism and suspicion. Bring up the rear, bringing up the rear of these deadly providers, you see two horsemen. One is jealousy and the name of the other has been purposely omitted. Each reader of this article may take inventory of himself and give the seventh writer a name that fits whatever he finds in his, mind, his own mind. <clears throat> Some will name this writer dishonesty. Others will name it procrastination. A few will still have the courage to name it uncontrolled sex desire. As for you, name it whatever you please, but be sure to give it a name. Perhaps your own imagination will supply in appropriate name as a fellow travel, traveler for jealousy. You will, you will be better prepared to give the unnamed writer a name if you know that jealousy is a form of insanity. Facts are sometimes cruel things to face. It is a fact that jealousy is a form of insanity known to be known to the medical fraternity as dementia precox. I had never heard that before. Oh, jealousy, thou ugliest fiend of hell. Thy deadly venom preys on my vitals, turns the healthful hue of my fresh cheek to haggard swallowness, and drinks up my spirit. Wow. You will notice that jealousy rides the back of suspicion. Someone who reads this will say that jealousy and suspicion should have ridden side by side. 
as one often leads to the other in man's mind. Jealousy is the most common form of insanity. It rides the minds of both men and women, sometimes with real cause, but more often without any cause whatsoever. This deadly rider is the great friend of the divorce lawyers. It also keeps detective agency busy night and day. Who? It takes its regular toll of murder. It breaks up home and makes widows of mothers and orphans of little children. Peace and happiness can never be yours as long as this rider remains unharnessed in your brain. Man and wife may go through life together in poverty and still be happy if both are free from this child of insanity known as jealousy. Examine yourself carefully, and if you find any evidence of jealousy, and your mind begin at once to master it. Jealousy rides in many forms. When it first begins to creep into the brain, it manifests itself into something after this fashion. I wonder where she is and what she is doing while I'm away. Or I wonder if he does not see another woman when he is away from me. But these, when these questions begin to arise in your mind, do not call in a detective. Instead, go to the psychopathic hospital and have yourself examined because more than likely you're suffering from a mild form of insanity. Get your foot on jealousy, jealousy's neck before it clutches on your throat. After you have read this essay, lay it aside and think about it. At first you may say, this does not apply to me. I have no, no imaginary horsemen in my brain and you may be right. One out, one out of every 10 million can say this and be right. The other 9,999,999 will be wrong. Do not fool yourself. You, you may be in the larger in that larger class. The purpose of this article is to get you to see yourself as you are. If you are suffering, failure, and poverty, and misery in, in any other forms, you are sure to discover one or more of these deadly riders in your brain. Make no mistake about it. Those who have all they want, including happiness and good health, have driven the seven horsemen out of their brains. Come back to this essay a month from now after you have had time to analyze yourself carefully. Read it again and it may bring you face to face with facts that will emancipate you from a horde of cruel enemies that now arrive within your brain without you knowing it. Oh, y'all, that was a deep chapter, I would say. Especially the ending part with the seven um, horsemen. Like I said, I know we all have those, like he just said, those seven horsemen as well. Riding in our brain with insecurities and everything else. Jealousy, suspicion, all those types of things. Getting yourself under control and, of course, finding out who you are and why you're that way. It's the main thing that I love to talk about. And that's why I'm reading this book as well. So, again, I'm Tanetta Clay, your social worker coach. Thank you for tuning in. Tanetta Clay, this is a social worker coach. The social... Lord, the Social Worker Coach Podcast. <laughs> I guess I put it that way. And I am a social worker and a coach as well. But like I said, this is the podcast on, here on Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcast episodes. Definitely make sure that you subscribe and follow. And of course, share this out with somebody that may need to hear this that is in business or not even in business, but somebody who's trying to get their life together. I guess I put it that way. And need to build a team around them, I guess I can say, of course, to create whatever kind of um, environment they need to, of course, become successful. I say that. So um, with that, y'all, like I said, that was the last part of the chapter number um, seven for enthusiasm. I'll see y'all in lesson number eight on self-control. Peace out, y'all. Again, this is Tanetta Clay, the Social Worker Coach Podcast, signing off. Peace out.